1: Today, we are joined by our guest host, filmmaker Heather Lenz, best known for directing and producing the Sundance documentary, Kusama Infinity. Michael Soba is an experienced filmmaker who's been editing documentaries in New York City for over 17 years. He's edited films such as Dixie Chicks, Shut Up and Sing, Running from Crazy, Urbanized, and This is Everything, GG Gorgeous, that have premiered at festivals such as Sundance, Tribeca, and the Toronto International Film Festival. Keeper of Time is Michael's directorial debut, which was supported with a From the Heart Roy W. Dean Film Grant. Thank you both for joining us on the show today. I'm very much looking
0: forward to the great conversation. Thank you so much, Claire, for the introduction and thank you, Michael, for being here. We're super excited to have you. And I saw the film and I just absolutely love it. I think it's beautifully shot and it's very poetic. And so I'm super excited to speak um with you today about it. Well
2: thanks for having for me anyone, on Heather.
0: Yeah, thank you. So for yeah, anyone I'm really excited um about Great. But, so your film's just coming out, so most people won't be familiar with it. So could you just tell us a little bit about it?
2: Yeah, Keeper of Time is the first featured documentary about mechanical watchmaking, um, the history of horology, and the very concept of time. Huh. It features four of the world's most renowned independent watchmakers, Philippe Dufour, uh, Roger Smith, Francois Paul Journe, and uh, Max Booser. Um it also explores, like I said, the very concept of time. So there's interviews with um some uh, uh philosophers, um physiologists, and um theoretical physicists.
0: Great. And for anyone who doesn't know, could you please explain what is horology?
2: Horology is essentially the study of mechanical timekeepers. So um, there's a difference between um, a mechanical clock or watch and a battery-powered watch, um, known as a quartz watch, um, and horology uh, concentrates on mechanical timekeepers.
0: Great. And how did you become passionate about and watches and everything time-related?
2: Well, um, my interest in horology and mechanical watches really started just four and a half years ago. Um, I bought myself a nice watch for my birthday, and um, I mean, because quite frankly, nobody else was going to do it. and I didn't know what a quote unquote nice watch meant, um, but it turns out that most nice nicer watches are mechanical in nature, meaning they're <clears throat> they're powered by a spring. you wind them up or they're wound by a rotor um, that winds uh the mechanism up uh with the movement of your wrist um gary steingart the the writer um He's also a Washington. He's in the film, and uh, he had a similar experience. He thought everything ran on a battery, and um, so when I when when I discovered uh, mechanical watches, um, I just immediately became obsessed and fascinated by these little micro machines and the micro engineering that went behind these mechanical uh, machines that told time um and i just started exploring everything on the internet reading every book i could get and it turns out in new york city there is the horological society of new york and they offer free classes to the public um about watchmaking and so you can go and take a class and you can take apart a watch movement and put it back together the movement um, is essentially the the guts of the watch the mechanical um, works, Um, and so I just dove in head first with all of this, and at the same time, um, as you mentioned in the intro, um, I'm a professional uh, editor for documentary films. I've been doing that for close to 20 years or whatnot, but I had always been looking to make my own film, and I just could not find the subject matter I was passionate enough about to commit my time and money to. But when I discovered mechanical watches, everything just clicked, and I, I was just like, this is it. This is This is the film I need to make.
0: Well, you picked a great topic, and it's certainly something I haven't seen any other films about, so that's, you know, always great. There's a woman in the film who works on objects made to look and move like animals, for example, swan, and it's just an incredible section of the film and I wonder if you could talk about the relationship between mechanical clocks and her work.
2: Yeah, the woman you're referring to is uh, Brittany Nicole Cox. She is an antiquarian hor- horologist uh, based in Seattle, Washington. And essentially what she, she's one of the very few antiquarian horologists in the world actually. And she specializes in Um, Restoring Antique Automaton. Uh, Automaton are, um, they're, how do I describe them? They're machines that are meant to look like living things, um, animals, people, um, and they run on uh, mechanical clockwork. So you wind them up. And um they run on the same sort of mechanisms that a clock or um mechanical watch would run run on um uh, and they're just really fascinating machines um The one that's featured in the film that really inspired Brittany to do her work um is the silver swan that was made i believe it was in the i think late. Mid to late 1700s, um, and it is a reproduction of a, a swan made completely out of silver, um, and it's just fascinating. It's it's wound up, and essentially the neck is so fluid, it goes down and picks up a fish, or that's the illusion, um, and preens its neck, and then comes back up, and there's um, a whole set of bells that 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 play a tune. And, um, and glass rods that turn to um, uh, illustrate um, the, the water and reflects upon the swan. I mean, these are just really wonderful pieces of machinery and art um, that, you know, when you think about them being made also, you know, like I said, in the, in the mid-1700s, it, they're, they're remarkable. And uh and so she's really dedicated her life to, to restoring these objects and as she puts it, you know, she's a steward for this sense of wonder and um um and and um and, and these magical objects. Um and uh yeah, she's 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 wonderful.
0: Yeah, well, I, I feel like just that one section of the film ma- makes it worth it to watch the whole film, but the whole film is beautiful, and, you know, you just did a great job filming it to capture the magic you're talking about. It looks like you flew around the world to make the film, and I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the locations you visited and which were your favorite and why.
2: Yeah, so, um, yeah, we did fly go all over the world. You know, the film started, um, you know... It, here in new york i did some interviews um, on my own dime and then i quickly realized you know i needed more money to go to europe and um you know so did a kickstarter which was successful we can talk about that a little more but yeah we went to we went to seattle i'm based here in in, in new york we went to seattle to film uh bernie we went to los angeles to film uh two clock collectors we went to Switzerland a number of times to film um, the, some of the watchmakers, uh, Philippe Dufour, um, Max Busser, and Francois-Paul And we went to the U.K. We were in England where we filmed um, ancient standing stone circles that were used as um, astronomical uh, instruments, You know, Stonehenge being the most famous. Um, we also went to Wales uh, to interview um, Jay Griffiths, who wrote a book about called uh, Sideways Look at Time, and she has a, a very poetic and philosophical approach to how we understand time and experience. And also went to the Isle of Man, uh, where uh, uh, watchmaker uh, Roger Smith is is based. Um, so we really, um, yeah, we really. Uh, we also went to Prague to film the astronomical clock there. Um, yeah, it was it was a real adventure and journey, and uh, just an amazing experience.
0: Well, yeah, it it really comes through in the film. Again, like all these incredible places you you visited, and the. You know the footage you captured is amazing. If you could pick any clock um, from the movie to own, which one would you pick? Do you have a do you have one that's like an absolute favorite? Or if it's too big to own, maybe which one's your favorite?
2: Well, I think um, you know. I, well, first, of all, it would be a watch. I think it would be um, one of Francois Paul Jorn's watches, and in particular, I mean they're all just beautiful objects um i quite frankly i be it would be a privilege to own any one of them um but the one that stands out for me i guess is, is Francois paul Journe's uh, resonance uh, wristwatch and it's a, it's essentially um two watch movements in one so it's the, the mechanical works of two watches that work independently and on a mechanical watch you have uh, you need something that oscillates in all timekeepers and what, you know, uh, for a clock, it's usually, it's a, it's usually a pendulum. Um, on a watch, it's something called a balance, which is a, um, a weighted wheel that basically oscillates back and forth. And so on this watch, there are two of these balances that are assembled to be very close to each other. Excuse me. And what happens is that these two balances that are oscillating through this really sort of magical uh, f- physical uh, phenomenon called resonance, they start to sync up without being mechanically connected at all. And, um, and it, it's, it's just remarkable that this has been produced in a wristwatch and so what happens is, is that the two, ba- watch, the two watches in, uh, sync up and get uh, a more precise timekeeper. Um, it's a really, really unique and special timepiece. And uh, Francois Paul Journe is um, just a horological innovator to have uh, accomplished that in a wristwatch. It's, it's a really special timepiece. Heather,
1: are you still with us?
2: Yes, can you hear me?
1: Heather, just checking to make sure uh can you can you hear me all right?
2: I can hear you. you I hear think me? we lost Heather the
1: All right. I believe Heather is back with us now. Oh, okay.
0: Oh, can, are you able to hear me?
1: Yes.
0: Yes, we can hear you now. Okay, yes, I did drop out but I'm back. Uh so um, the film talks a little bit about why the days seem to get shorter as we age, and I was wondering if you could summarize why that is.
2: Yeah, so one of the um, uh, people that I interviewed for the film, his name is Adrian Bijan, who's a distinguished professor at Duke University. And he had written a paper, and now a book, uh, which is essentially, was, the paper was essentially called Why This Set sooner as we as we age, and what he was basically getting at is that trying to explain in a physical, physiological way why it seems why many of us experience time speeding up as we get older, and the way that um, he explains it physiologically are, are, are essentially two two components. Um, one, basically, we grow larger as we age from a child to an adult, and so the, um, the distance between your eye and your brain where it processes the images, that actually gets longer. So it takes longer for uh, that signal to, to go from eye to brain. And then the other component is this sort of clicking mechanism in your eyeball. Um, I forget what that's called exactly, but that actually slows down, and so we experience time much like we experience a movie like frames. And so, um, essentially what happens is in this ratio, this, this clicking mechanism slows down and it's like a time, lapse, time becomes like a time-lapse camera. Um, and, um, there's, there's this ratio. And, um, at the end of the day, uh, we experience uh, time, much like a time-lapse camera, in which it seems to speed up, uh, the older we get Um, and uh, yeah it was just really interesting um, idea and uh, I ended up uh, illustrating that with with some motion graphics but also um, home movie footage of myself um, super eight footage which is the theme running throughout the film and sort of uh, pays off at the end Um, the film ultimately becomes a, a tribute to my to my
0: father yeah, that's very beautiful, and um, this is just an interesting concept, and, I'm, you know, it's great you included it in the film. How long did it take you to locate all these fascinating people that you included in your film?
2: Um, it was an organic process. Um, you know, my, the first interview I did uh, was with Nicholas Manousis, who is the executive director of the Horological Society of New York, And he was just a big uh, proponent and supporter of the project. And he connected me with um, a lot of the watchmakers and uh, Brittany Nicole Cox, as we had talked about. And, um, you know, once I got, uh, like, Francois Paul Journe, who was just a superstar famous in in, in the watch world, the the others uh, were easier to get. And then with the... um, The philosophical voices in the film, Uh, Adrian Bijan, for instance, who we were just talking about, my sister actually, uh, you know, uh, emailed me uh, an article that was talking about the paper that he wrote, Um, and uh, I called him up and he was uh, absolutely interested in participating. Uh, Jay Griffiths, um, uh, I had heard her on another podcast and discovered her book and. Um, yeah, so this all sort of organically happened over probably over a course of, you know, a year, year and a half to find all the people that were in the film.
0: Well, the film is beautifully shot, as I've already mentioned, and there are a lot of close-up shots where we appear to be looking at um, antique watches as if we're the person working on it. And I was, I know you weren't the cinematographer, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you got those shots.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, the two, uh, there were two cinematographers on the project, uh, Ben Wolf and, um, Luke Geisbuehler. Um, uh, Ben sh- shot the majority of the watch, um, watchmakers and, um, the assembling the watches. And it was really important to be able to get those super close up macro shots of the watches and the watch movements being assembled and all the mechanics because, you know, all this stuff is super tiny. And um, so to rent a macro lens, uh, time was, like, really expensive. Um, and so Ben uh, had found that uh, this company, Venus Optics, uh, had just released a macro lens a uh, snorkel macro lens. So it, it looks like a long tube, essentially. And, um, you know, this lens was under $2,000 to just buy and own. So I went ahead and just pur- we just purchased that lens for the for the production, and we just used it um, all over the place, like you had mentioned. Um, and then the, the camera that we used a lot for this footage, we used the Blackmagic uh, Cinema Camera 4K, um, and attached this lens to it, and it just was a lightweight sort of compact um, kit that we could put right over the shoulder of one of the watchmakers while they were assembling the watch or working on the watch, and um, could just put that right there and get these amazing macro close-ups of, um, of all the work they were doing. And we also used the lens for these beauty shots of, of the completed finished watches so we had like a we would have a light box and stick that snorkel lens in there Um, and uh, we had the watches on a rotating um, platform essentially and then we would just get these really you know beautiful shots of the completed watches and um, yeah this lens was uh, was uh, essential to to getting all all that amazing close-up footage
0: well, I'm so happy I asked you because, I, you know, I definitely noticed it, and um, it's it's super interesting to hear how you were able to achieve that. Did you also do some drone photography?
2: Yeah, um, both uh, Ben and Luke uh, had drones, um, um, and that was important to me, too. I think, you know, I think a lot of times drone footage can be maybe overused, um, but it was important it, it was important to me, like you said, we traveled all over the world, and I really wanted to um, give the audience that sense of moving around the world. And um, and so the drone is just such a useful tool to, in like one shot, say here we are in Geneva, or here we are in the Valley de Joux in Switzerland, or here we are in Prague, um, and you can just get these really beautiful sweeping um, uh, establishing shots of, of place and, and time. And, um, you know, I also wanted that to sort of play off with the, the, the macro shots we were just discussing. I think that's a nice juxtaposition of like these really wide shots of place. And then, um, and then, you know, cutting to just really close up macro shot of a, a working, uh, watch, um, and so, yeah, the drones um, were an important um, tool in, in, in the making of this film as well, yeah.
0: Well, obviously you gathered all this beautiful footage, and um, I wonder what, what it was like to edit your own footage, and what are the pros and cons of directing versus editing, and is, is there one you prefer more than the other?
2: Well, I really do enjoy the editing process. Um, I like working with other directors. Um, you know, as 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 we know, it's a very collaborative process. Um, and so, I, I do find editing really enjoyable. I, you know, it really is where um, the story is crafted. Um, and I um, and I enjoy writing the story in that way. Uh, as far as editing my own film that I produced and directed, you know, I'd always thought that I would just get another editor to do it. Um, because I think it's important to have that sort of perspective and objectivity, um, to, to to the, to the process and the editing. But, um, (laughs) I mean, it was, it was more of a practical decision I would say just because I couldn't afford an editor. Um, and so, um, yeah, I quickly realized I just edited myself. Plus I, I think I'm a bit of a control freak in that department and, um, I know how I wanted it to feel and, uh, the story I wanted to tell and how I wanted to, the edits to work and that sort of thing. Um, however, I am, you know, I, I do think you need other eyes on, on these things and, and during the editing process. And I'm lucky enough to be married to, uh, Shelby Siegel, who is an Emmy award winning, uh, Ace editor, and um, she was there to provide feedback um, with all the scenes and the film and how it was coming together. So, I, you know, I, I really you do really do need that at least, at least me personally, uh, because you quickly do lose your um, objectivity, and you, you know, there's points where you know you're editing so long on things, and you're just like, I, I don't know, is this, is this working or do people get it? Um, and so you need this, another pair of eyes at least to uh, give you feedback there. And the other thing great about uh, Shelby is that, at least with this project, is she had, she knew nothing about horology or watches or any of that. So she came from the perspective of a layperson in that department. And so that was very helpful because I really wanted this film, yes, um, it explores the world of watchmaking and watches and clocks, but um, I didn't want the film just to be for people that were already interested in that subject matter. I really wanted the film to be for a universal audience um, who had no idea that this world existed um, and, and let this film be an introduction for them into this like wonderful and sublime world of mechanical watchmaking. And so, um, you know, Showing to Shelby, I, you know, she could quickly tell me like this is getting too technical, like you know, people are going to turn the channel, <laughs> you know. And so that that was uh, that was just really really helpful and crucial.
0: Well, you did an excellent job, and I also uh, noticed um, the music is just wonderful. And I wonder if you could talk about your experience working with the composer.
2: Yeah, the music is is just wonderful. Um, the composer, Max uh, Avery Wittstein. Uh, um, was a friend of of mine and, uh, and Shelby's, and uh, I had worked with him on a, on a few other projects as an editor and as soon as excuse me, as soon as I knew I was making this film, um, I knew he would be composing the music. Um, we started quite early um, um, just talking about what the music would sound like would sound like i really wanted a more contemporary um sounding score to the the film um because i did want the film to appeal to um i just wanted to have a, a have a more contemporary feel to it and um yeah i mean max just i think hit a home run with the music i mean that's one of the big compliments i get about the film is just you know where, where can I get the soundtrack uh but we the process we started very early talked about you know even before I started editing what I sort of envisioned the film to be you know, have these grand themes about time and mortality and um he started playing around with things and then as I would edit a, a scene like a rough scene I would send it to him and then uh, he would compose, start composing ideas. So he really was there from the very beginning. Um, And then as things progressed, I think there was a moment where um, we both, it just sort of both clicked for us what the sound should be. And once that happened, everything really fell into place. Um, But yeah, he was wonderful to work with. And um, I'm, I'm just really thrilled with the score.
0: Yeah, it's terrific. How long did you work on this movie?
2: Um, it's been four years. So I started filming in... I actually started filming in the, the end of 2017. Um, originally, this was going to be a short film. And um, I was just going to... Um, a local watchmaker um, in the city who just basically repaired uh, clocks or repaired watches and serviced them um, and then realized that wasn't going to work out so great and then uh, like I said discovered the horological side in New York and started the, the first interview for, for the film was February 2018 um, so yeah it, it it's, it's taken me four years to get to this point
0: well, I think, you know, for an indie filmmaker that's pretty good, especially filming during the pandemic and everything like that. So if I'm not mistaken earlier, I believe you said you did a crowd campaign, is that right?
2: That's right. So um and, I did a Kickstarter campaign.
0: And could you talk so, about what uh, that was like?
2: Of course, yeah. So um like I think I I think I mentioned um the first few interviews I did, um, I paid for out of pocket. And, um, and one of those interviews with, was, with, uh, Francois Paul Jorn, who again is just a superstar, um, in the watch world. And, um, when I quickly realized if I really am going to make a feature length film, I need to go to his, uh, workshop in Geneva and I need to go, you know, to all these places I had mentioned, and that's going to cost money, obviously. So I was like, Ah, oh, I'll just do a Kickstarter campaign. And I was so naive about how that worked. I was like, oh, I'll just make a few tote bags and throw them up on Kickstarter next week, and, you know, I'll get $300,000. Uh, well, that's uh, – anyways, I, I sat down with my friends, Jessica Edward and um, Edwards and uh, 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 Gary Huswit, who have done Kickstarter campaigns for – for their uh, independent documentaries before they quickly sat me down and said, uh, yeah, that's <laughs> you can brace yourself. This is the k- If you want to do a successful Kickstarter campaign, it's a ton of work, which it was. Uh, it took me the entire summer to prepare. I had to get a, um, uh, a graphic designer to design stuff, you know, rewards, and uh, it, it, it is a project unto itself that you have to produce. Um, but Um, It was very successful. I grossed, uh, I think, close to $116,000. That, um, I think, that was about $90,000 I netted after everything. You know, the cost of rewards and shipping and uh, Kickstarter's take and that sort of thing. But that really funded the production that funded the filming. And the travel and the, and the cinematographers, and not only that, the Kickstarter was really um, beneficial in the sense that it it exposed the project I was working on to the rest of uh, the world, and um, and so some of the executive producers. Uh saw the Kickstarter and came to me you know one of the reward tiers was an executive producer for ten thousand dollars and um, the the executive producers can't you know I really wasn't expecting anybody to to give me ten grand on the Kickstarter um, but uh, they came on they're really passionate about watches and watchmaking, and they wanted to support the project and uh, came on as executive producers um, via the Kickstarter, which not only helped fun production but they were also there to help um and support the project in other ways um Eric Ku came on who is a um huge force in the watch world and uh, he introduced me to uh Philippe dufour who is um a watchmaker who's he's widely uh excuse me he's widely considered widely considered the greatest living watchmaker today and so um you know this all kind of stem back to the kickstarter i wouldn't have met eric had i not done the kickstarter and then you know philippe dufort wouldn't have been the film so it was really just the process of you know uh, connecting to the right people and then connecting me to the right people it was just sort of this web that grew and um in a really organic way um to get all the pieces of the puzzle for the film to be made, it was a really good experience.
0: Oh, I'm so glad you had a positive experience and EPs that actually, you know, helped you and contributed. So that's good to hear. Um, and I know you also applied for grants, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that experience.
2: Yeah, I wasn't sure how you know receptive um, people that. Gave out grants would be to this project um, because it's not, you know, I just assume that most of grants are for social issue documentaries, and you know, rightly so, um, that makes sense. So I did apply to Sundance, uh, the grant there, and then of course um, uh, applied to the Roy W. Dean grant, which I I was um, thrilled to to have won that um you know i really just want to say that um you know the the it was made a huge difference in being able to make this film which was done completely independently you know um i think the the cash award was $3,500 which not 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 a ton of money but you know uh every dollar helps but it really was what was really helpful with that grant um, was the discounts with all the vendors which I utilized to the maximum uh, you know so um, uh, it, it, it those discounts like the the uh, the, uh, the mix was done at the pro media and I got a huge significant discount there through the grant uh, attorney uh, robert siegel uh found through the grant and he worked at it as, you know he's reviewing the film now for the you insurance you know um uh the super eight film transfers uh were got a discount through the um through the grant i mean all of this uh made it possible for the film to be made To you know it's a low budget independent um uh, documentary, and it really does take a village to to, to make these films um, become a reality. and so I'm really grateful for for, for the Roy W Dean Grant
0: well i'm I'm so happy that you won the grant and I uh, obviously I know what you're talking about with um, the focus on many of the grants. Um, being social issue, it uh, they often exclude a lot of categories. Um, as you know, I did a biographical film, and those are typically mm-hmm. excluded from the from the grants as well. So it's you know it's tough. And I know the film is you know again it's just getting out to the world. And I wonder if you could tell us where we can see it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the world premiere of Keeper of Time is uh, is next week, April, Thursday, April twenty eighth. The world premiere is in New York City at the SBA Theater, and um, if you live in the New York uh, City region area, tickets are still available to come to the actual um, physical premiere, but if you live outside of the area or can't make it, um, we're also live streaming the world premiere at the same time. That starts at 5.45 uh, p.m. Eastern Time on mandolin.com, and so... You can tune in live and watch the film. It's going to be uh, streamed with high-quality HD. And then after the film, uh, you'll also be able to see the uh, Q&A panel discussion, which is titled The Allure of Watchmaking and the Notion of Time. Um, And that uh, includes a lot of the personalities that are in the film. Uh, Benjamin Clymer, who's the founder of Hodinkee, Michael Friedman, who's the head of complications at Audemars Piguet, and he's the history uh, personality in the film. Gary Steingart, the writer. Um, uh, William Andrews will be on the panel. He's uh, He makes these wonderful sundials that are featured in the film. For Brittany Nicole Cox, who we who, who discussed who, uh, the antiquarian horologist that uh, restores the automaton. She'll be on the panel. So It'll be a really fun discussion, and again, you can tune in uh, live stream for that and then you know if the timing doesn't work for that we're going to have four replays at different uh start times for the rest of the world the following day on the, the 29th all of these tickets uh are on sale now um at the film's website keeperoftimemovie.com so you can go in there and you can buy an in-person ticket or you can buy a virtual ticket and uh yeah i hope everyone uh tunes in to, to watch the film i think it'll be a fun experience
0: Great, and uh, so you shared your website. Could you also um, share with us um, the film's social media handle, your social media handles, um, any, anything you would like to share so people can follow your career and follow the film?
2: Yeah, um, the, best way, the best way to follow it um, is uh, Instagram and Facebook, and that's uh, Keeper of, at Keeper of Time Movie. Um, we're doing all kinds of – we're doing a lot of giveaways. So, um, actually, one of the – you know, I think worth mentioning, one of the giveaways we're doing is with the executive producer, Messina um, Lab, and they do uh, collaborations of watches with um, different watch brands, and they're sponsoring a fantastic giveaway in which if you buy a ticket to either the in-person uh, film premiere or the a virtual tickets, you're automatically entered to win – a Unimatic uh, Messina Lab a watch um, that was only um, available for friends and family at Messina Lab. It's a wonderful dive watch, and really exclusive. Only only eighty were made, so this is one of eighty that you, you could win in our own. Um, and so that's really exciting. So I would encourage people to get a ticket to, uh, to watch the film and and to win this this great watch. Um, but yeah, um, we're also on Twitter too. Um, Keeper of Time Move M-O-V Couldn't do the the whole movie For some reason But yeah Please follow on Facebook And and Instagram Uh, There's a lot of exciting things going on And and it's a great way to keep up with all the news And the latest with with the film Well that's
0: That's great. I hope a lot of people turn out and that you have a really successful premiere and, um, you know, we're running out of time here, but I did want to ask Mm -hmm. if you have any advice for first time filmmakers that you could share.
2: Yeah. One of the pieces of advice, you know, I had edited a number of films with Barbara Koppel. Um, and one of the pieces of advice that's always stuck with me that she's given is, um, just pick up a camera and start filming, you know, um, and i and 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 that's that's essentially what i did if you're passionate about a subject and you have an idea for a film um just start filming um because i can tell you once you start um you're compelled to finish it and um it's challenging it's really hard this is one of the hardest things i've ever done in my life for a number of reasons um but um it's so rewarding and yeah i would just encourage uh you know first time filmmakers to to follow their passion and um and and, and pick up a camera and, and start making a movie
0: well that's exciting that you've uh, had the opportunity to work with the legendary barbara koppel i think she may be one of the only directors to win best documentary the oscar twice so quite that's quite an honor um, and is there anything I didn't ask you that you would like to share with us before we close out the show? I don't
2: think so. Um, I think you know uh, this was a really fun discussion, and um, yeah, I would just encourage people to go to the website KeeperOfTimeMovie.com, dot com and get a ticket to the um, to the world premiere.
0: Well, great. Well, we're wishing you the best of success and. Um, Claire, I also wanted to ask, was there anything you wanted to ask, Michael, before we end the show? No, you did a great job with all your questions. And, Michael, I just
1: want to thank you so much again for joining us. And, Heather, always a pleasure to have you as our guest host. Looking forward to the next show with you. And um, just want everyone to be well.
0: All right. Well, thank you both, and thanks, everyone, for listening. All right.
1: Take good care. Bye-bye. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money create your story structure and your trailer legal advice fair use successful crowdfunding how to ask for music rights and what insurance you can't shoot without available on amazon under carol dean and at fromtheheartproductions.com